What is up, everybody? Welcome into the DNBR Nuggets podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Should be up there in the corner every any, any second here. Uh, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Download the app onto your phone. Use promo code DNBR whenever you sign up. And also, you can join us for the pregame shows where we do. It's like a, the pregame show, thirty minutes before every Denver Nuggets game. We do uh, a, a pregame, a preview where we talk about the game. We preview the game. We do like two little mini podcast segments, little bite size, like appetizer type podcast segments. And then we do a betting segment as well at the very end where we open up the sports book and we place bets for that game. We all bet together. It's a lot of fun. It makes the game a little bit more fun. So if you're not already checking that out, Maybe you're just tuning in for the first time this season. A lot of people wait till after the All-Star break to start to tune into the Denver Nuggets or, or to the NBA in general. If you're one of those people, then you could download, uh, you could check out our pregame show and all the cool stuff that we are doing there. Myself, Harrison, Brennan Vote, Eric, and Superstar Dev. We have a good time on all of those. Um, guys, you might notice something different today. I am back. Well, number one, I am back from vacation, uh, back and recharged and refreshed. No joke, by the way. You know, it's a long season, 82 games, covers like most of the year when you talk about going from like the start of training camp all the way through to the draft. It's a long one. Um, I think judging by my own mental health, taking this five days off or whatever it was for me, so nice. Like I feel energized. I feel excited flying home on the flight home last night, making notes about things I want to accomplish this week and for the rest of the season. I can only imagine the Nuggets players have a similar feeling. And I kept wondering the entire time coming into the All-Star break, how much was this going to, um, you know, this break, how much was that really going to be a refresh? Look, I personally could probably do another week of vacation. I'm sure all the Nuggets players could take another month of vacation. But five days still, I think, is quite a bit. So um, I have to imagine that the break is real and that the Nuggets in these final 50 games are going to be quite different than they were before and maybe have a little bit extra energy. We'll talk about that in segment three when Harrison Wendell joined me for segment three. Segment one, I'm going to talk about All-Star Weekend. A lot of stuff happened. Segment two, I'm going to talk about I'm breaking my silence on the MVP conversation. One of the reasons I wanted to solo today for the first two segments, um, in addition to just giving guys a little bit of extra time off, I have you followed the show long enough or you followed me long enough, you know I'm not a big fan of the MVP conversation, especially before the All-Star break. Well, here we are at the All-Star break. To me, it's a natural sort of moment in time to start to talk about these things. And so I want to, one, share my thoughts about the MVP race and where I see Nikola Jokic fitting into all of it. But two, be a little bit more meta in talking about the MVP race and why I dislike it, why I think that it, it can be a negative and is maybe becoming a negative in the NBA when it is talked about all year. So I'll kind of share my thoughts on that. I think it'll be very interesting. But first, I'm going to talk about All-Star Weekend. And All-Star Weekend was really, I mean, All-Star Weekend every year is like kind of the same. I always, it's funny how I always get surprised. Every year I'm surprised at how bad the defense is. I'm like, oh, I remember they get competitive and they do this or that. And then the first like three possessions, you're like, what? <laughs> What's going on? Nobody's even trying to guard guys. I don't know why every year it gets me. But this year was special in particular because it's the 75th anniversary of the NBA. And obviously, you've seen the rosters have come out, the top coaches, the 75 greatest players. Jokic did not make the list. Alex English did not make the list. That was a big topic of conversation earlier in October and November when those lists dropped. But nonetheless, the 75th anniversary was uh, by far the best part. The celebration was by far, in my opinion, the best part of All-Star Weekend. And it highlights to me the thing that the NBA lacks so that when you see 
them bring together the past generations and make a celebration of the history and the through lines of the NBA, it really highlights, you see it and you go, wow, this is awesome. How incredible is this to see all of these guys together, talking to each other, the stories that come out of it, interacting, hearing perspective on this generation, Shaquille O'Neal talking about the players that influenced his game or Allen Iverson talking to the next generation about guys he likes. That's where, when you see it, you're like, that's what sports are about, especially a professional league. And I think the NFL does a fantastic, maybe the best job of this. They used to have Steve Sable, who uh, one was a Colorado college grad, same to me, shouts to Colorado college at NFL films. He would document the NFL through these great, the history of the sport of football, but also the NFL through these great documentaries on ESPN classic and on ESPN. He passed away about 10 years ago. Um, but the NBA has done a great job of sort of telling their history but also relating about why that history fits into uh, the modern day game. You can track and see exactly the progression from the invention of the forward pass to uh, to everything else. And you can kind of trace the history and say, this led to that, which led to this. And the 86 Bears and the 2015 Denver Broncos feel like siblings. They feel like you can see the, the descendant of one from the other. You can almost draw a line. The NBA, I think, has lost sight of this both as an organization, as an entity, but also the players themselves, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. But when you see Michael Jordan show up, who, first of all, <laughs> I don't, the GOAT debate or whatever, like, I don't really, you're always going to have different perspectives. I don't think, just like the MVP conversation can be toxic, the GOAT debate can be toxic. But there's no question when you watch Michael Jordan walk out half drunk, maybe three quarters drunk, because he was at Daytona earlier in the day. Michael Jordan, care the most carefree, in, in the moment, present guy there is. Like, that guy... He reminds me almost of Allen Iverson in that he is bigger than any event for which he attends. But you saw when he arrived, the star amongst stars, the biggest presence in the room, the guy that even LeBron James looked no different from Luka Doncic when, when Michael Jordan comes over and, and embraces him and hugs him. Every single person, whether you're LeBron James, whether you're uh, Luka Doncic, whether you're John Morant, no matter who it is, when Michael Jordan shows up, they all become the same person, which is, oh my God, God is talking to me. So for you that miss Michael Jordan, whatever you think of him as a player, I think he's the greatest of all time, but whatever you think about him, his presence is just different. And it was so cool to see sort of him be a part of this. But when you see it and you see how great these moments were of tying all of these different eras together, you really realize that why does this feel like such a unique moment for the NBA? Why, unlike with the NFL, where, like I said, you almost always feel the ghosts of, of decades past and eras past, you almost feel their presence at all times. With the NBA, you see this, and it was a stark reminder of like, oh my God, this is so cool to hear, one, former players speak positively of current players, but also just to see the mix and to see Bill Russell on the same place, on the same stage as LeBron James and these guys. And it was just something really great. And it brought me to um, what I thought was the most interesting tweet because one of the things about, about this one was, uh, as I'm going to share, man, it says slide. How do I share screen here? Oh, there we go. Um, I was reminded of Kevin Durant was not there. He had a family emergency. A couple other people didn't make it for various reasons. Some maybe, you know, reasons that you can defend or, or not. But one thing about the NBA in this era of, of the NBA is that there's this giant schism between what the players feel like they owe their audience and owe their fans, what past players feel like they owe the current generation, what current players feel like they owe previous generations, and, and so forth. And by the way, this is a thing that is loudest, perhaps, in the NBA 
of all sports. But I think it is actually a symptom, a larger symptom of like American society, certainly, but probably a society at large where for some reason, all of everything feels so fragmented. And I thought Nate Jones, who, by the way, is a top five follow in all of the NBA, one of my favorite people, works in the business of player and branding and marketing. He just really understands the abstract of the NBA and what it's all about, as well as anybody. I always learn something from him, especially when he speaks on topics such as this. And he talked about, I mean, the NBA product, if we're, if we're being completely honest, has not been great over the last decade, really in the Adam Silver era. But I think you could trace it back even before that. When you have players quitting on teams now, which has reached its zenith with like James Harden, who quit on two teams within a calendar year, uh, quitting on teams, forcing their way out, feeling disconnected from fans, from media. One of the big storylines this weekend, we'll get to it in a second, but Adam Silver talking about media probably won't ever go back in the locker rooms, this or that. And this was actually what Nate Jones was responding to, although he could have been responding to any number of things. I think there is a lack of understanding from multiple sides of the NBA family on what it took to build the league and what it takes to maintain it and grow it now. If everyone always did what was most comfortable, we wouldn't have the league we have today. Now, he's talking about this from, you know, people have talked about media inside of a locker room and it causes all these issues or people don't like it or anybody can get in and write a hot take. I know everybody's up in arms right now about Nick Wright, who's just doesn't like Jokic and has made his brand like crapping on Jokic. And you think about like, okay, this guy, he should, he needs to be kicked out. We need to silence his voice or, 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 or this or that. And I think this is part of, it plays into at least part of what Nate Jones is talking about here of the media. It can be true that the media has really evolved and sucks in many ways, but also, like, are we really wanting to throw out every negative thing because it's uncomfortable? And all of a sudden, we've created this insulation where players are feel like they are bigger than their responsibilities to the game. And in doing that, you kind of forget all of the pioneering that happened for players in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to grow the league so that guys can make all the money. One of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, and it wasn't my point, by the way. I can't remember who it was that was, but I think it was Shaquille O'Neal talking about how hard it was, how hard players fought for all of this money that they make. So now they make these 30 million, 40 million, even some cases, almost $50 million a year contracts, super max contracts. And to see players like Kyrie Irving or Ben Simmons say, yeah, but I'll throw all of that out. I, I disregard it. In a lot of ways, you're don't, not having the respect for how hard it was to earn those contracts and how you might be leaving the next generation worse off. Well, I think in bringing the 75 players together, this point was highlighted even more so of, hey, do players today in the league today understand the same responsibilities they have to each other and to their audience that players who weren't making the, the large amounts of money, who weren't on uh, all these endorsement deals and doing everything else, do they have that same thing? And he goes on to say, from teams deliberately sitting stars during national TV games, by the way, this is a thing that started over 10 years ago, to thinking media isn't valuable and some guy sitting out or half-assing it to get what they want. It just all says, I want to do the minimum, which also tells fans your game isn't worth taking that seriously either. But hey, man, league fits and trade rumors, gossips, going to drive interest and grow the game. I think it's fantastic insight, obviously, from Nate Jones. And it's one of those things where League fits, first of all, I know everybody like watching the show that's become a running bit. People like to, I, I get my clothes from dress barn or this or that, like what's everybody wearing this or that. It's funny. It adds texture to our environment in this little world that we lived in. To me, I look at this stuff and I think, I don't care. Like these things are such minor little hits. And when we analyze players as outfits, to me, those are texture to an already established product. That is the thing that you're selling. 
the texture of it is like fun for some people, fun not fun for people. But when that becomes more than texture, when that actually becomes the conversation, that's all we care about is how popular is this guy or, or you know, try to make them into these heroic things or, or, or whatever. Like to me, it, we're, you're going in the wrong direction. When you start to think about, well, we're resting guys here because we want to get advantage. I'm not, I don't want to fuel the like Embiid hate. But it spoke volumes to me earlier this season when Embiid played in 19 straight games, 17 of which were against teams with losing records, one player of the month in that stretch, and then had a day off before and after the Memphis game and chose to rest that game. I sit here and think, if I'm a, pay, a, a like an NBA fan and I want to watch a game, do I care about Joel Embiid versus Orlando or Joel Embiid versus Oklahoma City or you know Detroit as much as I care about him versus the Memphis Grizzlies, a game where you know that's going to be a competitive one, two very good teams. And I look at this and I think, have we lost the plot with why we do this in the first place? And are and these are the things that I think the NBA is maybe you know losing touch of. And again, the 75th anniversary, this uh, you know bringing everybody together, kind of brought all of this stuff into perspective in a way that I didn't think it had been uh, over the last little bit. And then of course. You know, another thing that you noticed um, as you're watching the 75th anniversary and some of the photos that came out, there are teams that are significantly more over the 75 year history, significantly more represented than others. It's not lost on me. And I'm so glad so many different people, including people not connected to the Nuggets at all, made the point that Alex English missed this list for some reason. A guy who led an entire decade in scoring, who, by the way, one of the golden decades of the NBA, led that entire thing in scoring did not make this list. And look, there's a lot of good players that didn't make it. Dwight Howard, I thought, should have also been on this list, certainly ahead of his teammate, Anthony Davis. Um, but Alex English, a guy, and do we have any doubts that if Alex English played for the Los Angeles Lakers for that decade, led the decade in scoring, he would have been penciled in in the 50th anniversary, let alone the 75th anniversary. You go through it and you see the 76ers. There's like 15 players. You look at the Lakers. There's like 15 players. You look at the Nuggets. I don't really know if there were any Nuggets that were on that list. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, who's 50% Nugget, 50% Nick. Maybe if he was only a Nugget, maybe he wouldn't have even made it into this list. So you look at that and you think, as cool as it was to have this through line and to see the history of the game, it isn't. it's also not lost on me that the history of the game is really the history of a handful of, full of teams with a few other guys here or there that snuck in. Um, and that's another thing as you kind of evaluate the health of the league. Is that a thing that is continuing? Is it a thing that is getting worse? Or is it a thing that the league is actively trying to make better to better tell their entire history? Um, so those are some of my big takeaways from the 75th anniversary. Just it really was an opportunity for me and I hope for the NBA to reset and say, this is who we are. We are the story that connects from 1967 all the way through 2022 and continuing. And we need to tell that story where the game takes the center stage and we are allowed the game to be the thing. You know, I always, I grew up on Ahmad Rashad doing inside the NBA, who I thought was fantastic. If you missed out on the nineties uh, inside the, uh, uh, it's not inside the NBA. How am I, how am I forgetting? The, how am I forgetting the name of this one? Uh, what was the show? Help me out in the comments here. What was the show? Uh, the Madrashad ran uh, on Saturdays. Every single Saturday it was the best. But he was a guy that was like his entire point was to try to boost the NBA to try to like tell the story of like, hey, how cool is this story? I'm going fishing with with big country, uh, Brian Reeves. I'm gonna go do uh, inside stuff. Thank you, inside stuff, NBA inside stuff. Uh, he just told all these great stories about it. And he would go to different cities and talk about the fan base and this or that. You fast forward 25 years from inside inside stuff. 
where everything was a celebration. We're trying to document and celebrate our game. And, and Mount, we're going to Denver. We're going to talk about Dikembe Mutombo. We're going to learn about all his names. We're going to do all this stuff. So now we just have Nick Wright and Skip Bayless and all these guys who just bark the loudest uh, and make the game an insufferable conversation. The NBA needs to learn something from this and what lasts and what sticks. Um, the dunk contest was a joke. The league has built its brand on name recognition. I think LeBron James, the dunk contest has always been, hey, what are the big rising stars who also happen, which is quite frequently these things overlap, also the most athletic players, and can they put on a show? Michael Jordan, Dominique Wilkins, Vince Carter. Uh, you had big name people in the dunk contest, Dr. J, uh, David Thompson. You fast forward to LeBron, and I honestly think he was the first one that said, this isn't for me. Um, he was the biggest name. He was the best dunker. Why didn't he do it? It set a precedent to now you have it with Obi Toppin, who comes off of the bench for a bad team. You've got Cole Anthony, who plays as a guard for a bad team. You got guys like, um, you know, Jalen Green's a great dunker, but is he big enough of a name right now that people are tuned in and they're just interested for it? I don't think so. Um, but then you think, sit back and think, why didn't LeBron play it? Well, he didn't play it because this legacy thing became so big to where losing a competition in a meaningless dunk contest became a thing that was bad for a brand. And here's where things get complicated. As you guys know, Nick Wright used this opportunity to talk about Jokic being picked seventh in the all-star draft meant something that's meaningful. What does it mean? It means something. It means he's not really as good as you guys think. He didn't play in the fourth. That's meaningful. It means something. It doesn't. It should mean that we have a celebration of a game and the game was awesome, which it was, by the way, it was a fantastic game, but instead it becomes this thing that automatically we somehow take a good thing and turn it into a negative legacy looking forward, not living in the moment, but looking forward thing. So part of me, I criticize LeBron James for killing the dunk contest, but I also understand him because it's the symptom of a larger problem with why these things are so, why wouldn't you abstain if losing a meaningless dunk contest hurts your image legacy and maybe even your chance to market yourself? Of course you would sit this one out. Uh, I love that three, three point contest was great. It was the highlight of the weekend. I thought it was awesome that Carl Anthony Towns won stepping up for the big man. Um, you know, he's talked a lot about him being the best big man shooter of all time. Uh, I don't, again, love these types of conversations, but cool of him to say that, to put his name out there and then go to back it up and win this competition. Um, I love that the three-point, this is the three-point era, and I love that the three-point contest has sort of taken center stage. But guess what? The big names come out for it. Carl Anthony Towns goes out for it. Steph Curry goes out for it. You get all of the big names. Um, so I think that's a great thing. And then the All-Star game was incredible. Um, Curry going off was awesome. Like hitting 16 three pointers. First of all, it's absolutely insane that a guy, even in an exhibition game can make 16 threes. The Elam ending is a huge hit. We've done this for a couple years now. I, I it's a mainstay. The, the NBA is going to implement this um, new mid season tournament, maybe as early as next year. And I'm very curious to see if the Elam ending is a part of that tournament. I, I kind of think the NBA wants it to be. My recommendation was to make the Elam ending, which if you don't know, uh, to start the fourth quarter, they take whoever the high is of the two teams whoever has the high score and you add 24 points onto the end of it in honor of Kobe Bryant and so they play to the next to, to, to the next 24 points and I just like that because it means you're always going to have a game winner there's always going to be somebody who ended the game with a, a made basket which I think is great um so, and it just adds drama for the all-star game it's perfect I think for overtime it would work too one reason you don't want to implement it too much, like change fourth quarters, I don't think it's needed. Like NBA fourth quarters can still be great, even if they can be a slog sometimes, but there's other ways to to sort of make it more entertaining. 
But um, but the Elam ending is great, I think, for overtime. You don't want double, triple, quadruple overtime during the regular season. Why not make all NBA overtimes first to 10 or 12 or 15 or something like that? To me, it means you're guaranteed to have a game winner. If you got an announcement on your phone that said, you know, two teams you don't care about, say Knicks versus Magic went to overtime, but you know it's an Elam ending. You're not worried about, oh, I'm going to watch this ugly basketball where one team fouls down four and this or that. No, you think, oh, sweet, there's going to be a game winner. I'm guaranteed if I tune in right now, I get to watch a game winner in the Magic Knicks game. Like, I don't care about that game, but I do want to see who hits the game winner. So I think the NBA can implement this in a small way by making it the rule for overtime. Uh, And then the quarter-by-quarter thing in the All-Star game, I think, also works. Making each quarter sort of mean something, representative of something. I think that's really cool. And also, look, it was back in Cleveland. LeBron hit a game winner and was great down the stretch. Not a LeBron guy, but I thought it was a cool moment. I thought it was a really, really great moment. So I thought that was cool. Some quick hitters here also just kind of around the the Denver sphere. Do you guys happen to notice Jokic and Giannis getting along very, very well? I definitely noticed that. Um, This is the second year in a row that those two seem to have this like budding friendship. And there was a great article in, I think it's the Milwaukee Sentinel. I might be screwing this up. Whatever the paper of record is in Milwaukee. Um, There was a great article in there. It's behind a paywall, but somebody sent me sort of a screen grab so I could watch it about their growing, Giannis's growing respect for for Jokic. And it was really great. Now, I know everybody was going to turn this into Giannis is coming to Denver. Is Jokic going to Milwaukee? Whatever. I don't even... I don't care to talk about or speculate about those types of things. Maybe, maybe those two guys do like each other so much that they would want to team them up. But I think more than anything, you're seeing these international players kind of band together in a way that they are all outsiders in the NBA. But the outsider table is kind of getting bigger and bigger and more important. Uh, Jokic and Doncic this week. So Jokic and Giannis really got a well. If you read that article, if somebody from Milwaukee sends you a screen grab of that article, you should check it out. But Jokic, those two had a bit of a bit of a history. Jokic and Doncic this time, I thought you saw more videos of those two guys interacting as good friends more more than ever. And again, it's the Outsiders Club. Even though they're some of the best, like Jokic, Doncic, and Giannis are three of the top probably seven players in the NBA, indisputably. You see three of the top seven guys are all just forming this Outsiders group. I just think it's cool to see, and this is what makes the All-Star break so great. Uh, Bones Highland in the rookie game, I, this was big for him. Yes, it's this rookie-sophomore game, which is on a Friday, and not that many people watch it, but Bones was one of the better players when he was on the court. He had 10 out of the 50 points in the game that he played. I think this was good for his sort of vaulting onto the big stage. And when we get into the next segment, I want to talk about why I think he is primed for a very good closing stretch of the season. And then lastly, Jokic's birthday was over the weekend. He's 27 years old. When I say that out loud, that Jokic is 27, the first thing I think about is how much time flies. Like, honestly, how much time flies? He was just 20 years old the other day. Just 20 years old. We've watched this whole part of his career unfold, and it's been fantastic. But 27 to me is the bullseye of your prime. Probably 27 to 29 is about the bullseye. We are officially in Nikola Jokic's prime. And obviously, he has an MVP. Like, you, you know, maybe last year will be or this year will be the best season of his career. Who knows? There's arguably the greatest season ever, regular season ever. So to say that he'll actually be better than this might even be a stretch. But we are now at the point where you would expect Jokic to be his most dominant. And it just really, when you see him turn 27, you see it in writing, you really sit back and think like, man, this is, uh, you know, the, the, the clock ticking, you start to hear it, I think. At least for me, I start to hear it for the first time where I'm like, 
every single season means so much right now. Um, and, and it just kind of hits you. Uh, it just kind of hits you that realization of how important this is. Why don't we take a break on the other side? I'm going to get into the MVP conversation. That was All-Star Weekend, the 75th anniversary, and sort of some big picture takes about the NBA and where I think they are awry, but why the 75th sort of uh, primes us for where we're headed or where they should be headed. But when we come back, we'll talk about the MVP conversation, why I don't like it, but also why I think that it is evolving in a way that is ultimately, I think, pretty positive. Um, but first, have you not been able to watch the Nuggets recently? There's this big cable dispute. I don't know if you guys heard about it. Altitude, Comcast, billionaires fighting with each other. We're all left here. But Ivaca TV is a brand new company down proud of Colorado Springs that uh, is bringing Altitude to you. Ivaca TV is a totally new paradigm for TV delivery that is less expensive, more efficient, and offers a superior picture than legacy providers. Service includes local networks like, yes, that's right, Altitude Sports, but also other national channels. Ivaca TV is growing constantly and adding new challenge, uh, channels to their lineup. The service is available in Denver, Colorado Springs, Phoenix, Boise, and Twin Falls, Idaho. In Denver, Avaca TV uses next-gen broadcast technology, which allows for a vibrant picture quality. So you don't think if I'm getting like, oh, I want to go with the big cable provider, it's better, better picture. Not true. Better picture with Avaca TV uh, using far less bandwidth than streaming services. Um, so this is a really great thing. Makes it easy to follow the teams that you love. And here's what's cool. If you go to avaca.tv slash DNVR, that's E-V-O-C-A dot TV slash DNVR, you only pay $25 per month plus the price of the receiver. There's no contracts, no hidden fees, and prices locked in for two years. So $25 a month, there you go. You solved your problem about not being able to watch Altitude Sports. Check them out, Avaca TV. And then lastly, I want to tell you about Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer partner of, my, uh, of DNVR. They've got the seltzers. Uh, if you're a seltzer person, they have some fantastic ones. Uh, the good company uh, lemonades are also fantastic. But then, of course, you've got all of the beers that we carry at the DNVR bar, eight of them on tap, including the Vanilla Porter Jr., which I know Michael Porter Jr. should be coming back soon. Vanilla Porter Jr. at the DNVR bar never went anywhere. You got the Mile High City Copper Lager, which is the Denver Nuggets themed beer. Um, what else? You got the RK Special. Uh, all kinds of great beers. Avalanche, Amber, Strawberry Sky. Lots of different ones to try out. So if you haven't checked them out, check them out at the DNVR bar or at your local. In, in Colorado, they're just pretty much everywhere at every single liquor store. If you don't know, you can use the Breck Beer Locator. Just Google Breck Beer Locator, put in your zip code, and they will tell you the nearest restaurants and liquor stores that are selling them. So you can go and check them out. Uh, again, that's Breckenridge Brewery. Segment two. Segment two, we're going to talk about the MVP discussion. So you guys know me. I have this rule. The MVP conversation gets moved up every single year. And now it, it happens in like October. You almost get into it in the preseason. Like, man, in the preseason, who's the who's the favorite for the MVP right now based on what we've seen? Or just if you have an MVP conversation that starts before the season, what you're really telling me is that the MVP, that your MVP, um, sort of how you weigh it, has something to do with narratives that are completely beyond the players' control. Because if nobody's played a game, then how can it be this? But here's why I really dislike it. And not in order. In fact, the last point I'm going to make is probably the most important one. But number one, when we talk about value in basketball, so much people think about it in terms of one-on-one skill set. And one-on-one skill set is massively overrated in NBA. The NBA is a five-on-five -five game. That doesn't mean it's not important. It's actually supremely important. It's just also overrated because it's the easiest thing to see. If Kevin Durant crosses over LeBron James and hits a jumper for three in his face, 
we look at that and we go, that's a good basketball player because it was mano y mano. There's nobody else involved, no other context needed. He just was better than him on this one play. And we can extrapolate that and say, okay, that must be equally or close to equally um, have an equal correlation to how good they are overall at the game of basketball. One-on-one -on -one is really important. The Nuggets are lacking guys right now, especially without Jamal Murray, who can just break guys down one-on-one. -on -one. Jokic is a great one-on-one -on -one player, but as a big, you still need guys to be able to get you the ball. It's easier to double like on the block than it is in other parts of the, uh, you know, other parts, because when you're on the block, you usually pass the ball further away. Whereas if you're on the perimeter and you double, you can pass the ball closer too. So there, there are reasons that it's harder for a, a big man to shine one-on-one, -on -one, but nonetheless, the analytics prove it out as an isolation player. Jokic is a fantastic scorer. He has gotten to the point where if you don't double him in the post, he's going to put up massive numbers on you. He is now ninth in the NBA in points per game. So as a scorer, and even as a one-on-one -on -one scorer, he's still one of the best in all of the NBA, but he gets docked because he's not quite as good as, say, a Kevin Durant, maybe a Joel Embiid, maybe a Steph Curry, and some of these other guys who their one-on-one-ness shines a little bit more. But this is why I dislike it, because it's not representative. In fact, one-on-one -on -one basketball is just a portion of what makes basketball good and compelling. Two-on-two -two basketball and three-on-three -three is the most underrated thing. Most of basketball features actions between two or three players with two other players reading the court and spacing the court off of them. There's very few actions where all five guys are in directly involved in the play. Like a pick and roll is two players. A double, a pin down is three players, a person with the ball, person setting the screen, somebody coming off of it. Most basketball is some form of two on two or three on three. Again, with the fourth and fifth guys as sort of like waiting to enter the fray, but out of the fray. Is there anybody in the NBA that would have a bad two-man game with Nikola Jokic? Dead serious about this question. Is there a single, uh, I shouldn't say single player, a single star, a single star? Because it's interesting to me that we're talking about James Harden and Joel Embiid, two of the best one-on-one -on -one players in the NBA. One of the guys, the best pick and roll. And we're thinking, I wonder if it'll work. There's only one ball. I wonder. And look, I think it probably will. But I also think there will be some growing pains as those guys learn to work together. James Harden and Jokic works. Kevin Durant and Nikola Jokic works. Steph Curry and Nikola Jokic work. Giannis and Nikola Jokic work. There's no player in the NBA that you couldn't tell me, pair them with Jokic, and Jokic wouldn't make their skill sets better. They wouldn't augment them. Do you know how crazy this is? Like Kevin Durant, there's guys that would and would not work. Now, he's, they're so good that they can just play one-on-one -on -one around each other, and maybe that would work as it is. But Kyrie Irving would work with Jokic. Like any of these guys would work with Jokic. John Morant, they're all so different. Their skill sets are all so different. But if you paired them with Nikola Jokic, all of them, every single one of them would be made better and the team would be made better because of them on, and that impact. To me, this is the most absurd thing. And if you asked anybody that, like, would players be made better by playing with Jokic, off, at least offensively, they'd say, absolutely, of course. They understand this intuitively. So why doesn't that get – why don't we weigh that the way we weigh one-on-one? -on -one? Oh, he would be a one-on-one -on -one player, especially when you consider that one-on-one -on -one possessions make up like 8% of NBA possessions, like true isolations make up 1%. By the way, one-on-one -on -one maestros like DeMar DeRozan also would be made better with Nikola Jokic. Like Jokic would still make his life significantly easier. Um, But more than any of this, making a team sport, basketball is so such a beautiful sport because to me it is maybe the best in all of sports, the best confluence of individual greatness and team greatness. An individual without a great connection to their team can be a good team, but they can't win a championship. A great team without great individuals can be great, 
but probably can't win a championship. It's the blend of those things that makes basketball so fantastic and so fascinating. It's why LeBron James has been the greatest player in the NBA for at least 10 years over his over his career, but only has four championships. Sometimes he had a best team, but they underachieved. Sometimes he didn't have the best team, uh, and so they got beat there. But it's that confluence, it's that growing together that makes the game so interesting. So when we watch even the All-Star game last night, what are we talking about at halftime? Who's the leader of MVP? Who's the MVP? It's boring. It's horribly boring. We're taking this sport where it should be about how do guys come together? How do they play together? What's the process that this team is going through and where are they at in that process? And instead it reduces it all down to one player. And by the way, we do this with Jokic. We talk about on off as if he's carrying a bunch of horrible players. Now, is he missing his second best player and his two-man game partner and Jamal Murray? Of course. Is he missing his best shooter and Michael Porter Jr. and the best floor and, and, and like versatile floor spacer that makes his life easier? Of course, these things happen. But so often the conversation is like, one player is good, everyone else is bad. This is the context for it. A basketball team is all about the blending of talents, the blending of chemistry and all these different things. And this is why talking about it constantly going back to the MVP to me misses the most interesting aspects of basketball. And it's most of all, it's just boring. I'm so bored of the conversation. I can't imagine I'm the only one. To me, it's a Twinkie. It's like you keep throwing Twinkies at people and they're like, man, this is really sweet. It lasts. Then you eat it and then you feel terrible and your body just like degenerates. And we just keep doing it because it gives you that quick endorphin rush like nick wright says something about Jokic, and we're all like oh we all have to comment it on top of it. it it becomes this addiction but we're actually not providing any substance to ourselves we're just giving the lowest common denominator and over time i'm just looking at this a a, a, a timeline full of twinkies being thrown around everywhere and i'm like the i just want a salad i'm so sick of eating junk food that's what the mvp discourse is to me imagine if music were analyzed this way imagine if we were talking about the greatest drummers of all time. And like you talked about, oh, you know, uh, I really like Ringo Starr, his style. And I'm like, yeah, he's not as good as Neil Peart. Like that was my analysis. You're like, yeah, but I really like him. Yeah, but he's not as good. He's not the MVP of the Beatles. You'd be like, wait, what? What are we talking about? I like the music. I like the way it all comes together, the context of this guy, or that one. Imagine if we talked about food. And I was like, man, um, you know, this, uh, this pizza is really good. And you're like, it's not the best pepperoni. It's not as good as sausage and much like this is just how everything you do, you critique it. Movies might be the thing. I, I was trying to think of other things where we try to you take a collection of things and you highlight individuals. Movies might be the best we do where we intuitively understand how individuals can shine. But it we we can judge also them within the context of a broader movie because you can say, you know, I didn't really like that movie, but Daniel Day-Lewis was so good in it that it made me enjoy the movie. Or you could say that was a fantastic movie. The cast was great, but uh, you know, so and so stood out even more. Like everybody was great, the movie was great, but so and so stole the show, right? Like we, we see this all the time. This is how basketball is. It's like you know what? These teams were great. They worked together so nicely, and Jokic just he shines through for everyone. We intuitively understand this, but imagine if movies were only discussed this way, where you're talking about you know I don't like. Uh, I'm going to use your guys as like, I didn't like um, Guardians of the Galaxy because uh, it's not as good as, as you know, whole day, whatever. You're, you're right. I shouldn't have gone there. I should have gone to some more movies. I'm more grounded in. But you get the idea. You take, you take away these like, you take away like com constantly comparing one piece of a greater movie and comparing it against one piece of another movie. It would be the dumbest way to talk about movies. You would be like, are we miserable or what? 
we do this with sports for some reason, and in particular with basketball in a way that I think is absolutely crazy. Now, here's the, the thing that's interesting, though, about this year and really about the last few years. The MVP guidelines are changing in a way that I think is actually really good on a couple ways. Team record is becoming less important, as it should, in my opinion, because team record is like, do you have a good team or not? Why are we judged? It used to be had to be a top one, two, or maybe a three seed. I think it was one, two for like all but five years of the last 50. Are we just saying the best player on the best team, that's the MVP? I don't think so. It should factor into the overall context. Does what you do impact winning? And that's not just a numbers thing that that goes beyond like, is your team having success? I think it's important, but I'm glad we got, we are starting to unofficially get rid of this idea that it can only go to the person in the one, two or three seed. I think it's great. Um, the pandemic is also changing this. Uh, players resting more is probably changing this a lot that we kind of understand that the regular season has all of these little contexts in it that, that can affect things. If advanced stats are becoming less important. And I think this is a good thing. They, again, they should factor into it. But I know like Jokic right now has the number one. I mean, he's Jokic is one of the reasons this is changing. He has the number one PER of all time. The number two PER all time, Giannis, this season. So I think it's important to put in context. By the way, Embiid has the fifth greatest PER of all time. So three of the five best PERs of all time are currently happening in this season. I think that's important context. So when we look at these things, we don't just say he has the best catch-all metrics. Ergo, he should be number one. It's just a thing you factor into it, and I think that's important. Jokic also has the number one box plus minus of all time. That's really great. Giannis has the number 12 box plus minus of all time. These things should factor in, but they shouldn't be the whole thing, and I'm glad they are factoring in in ways that are more and more appropriate. And then counting stats are becoming less important. Russell Westbrook won the MVP the year he averaged a triple-double. He's gone on to do that, I think, three other times or two other times. I think we all now understand, and our guy Jokic dominates triple-doubles as well, but we all know, understand there's something about this era of basketball that lends itself to triple-doubles becoming more frequent. It's just the way the game is played, the spacing. There's more spacing, so I think there's more room to drive and dish. Um, better shooters, you know, the best, better basketball players in general, so there's more guys to finish plays um, successfully. You think about even as recently as like 2009, the Cavs had – and their starting five team that went to the Eastern Conference Finals, they had three guys that couldn't make a shot outside of the paint. That's not the case anymore. Now most teams have five guys that can like shoot a standstill jump shooter, uh, open jump shot. And so there's just more opportunities for assists and this or that. So counting stats have gone away. Um, as we get into Jokic's case though now, so we put those things aside that say that now to actually talk about the most valuable player, I do think we're slowly inching more towards what does it actually mean to be an, an, an MVP candidate. Well, here's Jokic's case when we go through all of these one by one. Let's look at his counting stats. He is ninth right now in the NBA in scoring. He's second in rebounding. He's seventh in assists. He's averaging 26 points per game, 13.8 rebounds, 7.9 assists. Top 10 in three different, the three main catch-all, you know, counting stats. And no other player is, is top 10 in all, all three of those. Not really even close. You go to the advanced stats. So automatically we can say just from raw numbers, He's putting up numbers that nobody else in the NBA is. If you go to the advanced stats, here's what I love. He has the second best effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentage. These are things that measure your efficiency as a scorer. The second most efficient score among the NBA's top 50 scores in the NBA. He's only behind Jared Allen. So to kind of show you who all is on the list, Jared Allen's a top 50 scorer when you talk about total points scored. Um, Jokic only behind him, but LeBron, Giannis, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, all those guys, Jokic is in most cases significantly ahead of those guys, but he is ahead of everybody other than Jared Allen, who literally only dunks or lays it in or shoots that little like four foot push shot. 
Um, he he has the individual third best offensive rating amongst all players in the NBA who are starters, third best, despite not having his running mate in Murray or Michael Porter Jr. Offensive rating is a team metric. But if you tell me that your team, no matter if you take off your second option and your third option, you are still in the 99.9th percentile of all NBA starters in offensive efficiency. To me, that tells you something very, very important. And then what's crazy is defensive rating, again, measuring how well do teams score when he's on the court. He has a better defensive rating than Joel Embiid does, who, by the way, has great defenders all around him. So Jokic, if we go to advanced stats, on top of him being you know number one PER and box plus minus of all time, advanced stats in every category also talk about his efficiency being off the charts, uh, counting stats. Now, here's what's cool about the team record. He's fifth overall in raw plus minus which is absolutely absurd. Just raw plus minus. When he's on, so we talk about team record. Well, let's talk about team record. When he's on the court, he his team wins better than everybody in the NBA minus five players. Two Utah Jazz players, two Suns players, and I think uh, Jason Tatum, who has a couple more games under his belt. If Jokic's team, if the Nuggets had the same plus minus that the Suns do when Chris Paul were on the bench, Jokic's plus minus would be right behind Steph Curry's for the greatest in the NBA, and the record would probably be the exact same as well. So this, when you talk about team record, really what you're saying is that because a team is better when he's not on the court, that's why he can't be the MVP, like as if he's not affecting him. By the way, there is something to that. Like great leaders do seem to get the most out of all the, the team, even when they're not on the court. That should factor in about this much, not this much into how you evaluate the MVP conversation. More on team record here. The Nuggets, you can pull this up now, Kale. The Nuggets are one in five without Jokic in the lineup. One in five. We can go to that, that one first. Nuggets are one in five in the NBA without Jokic in, uh, in the lineup. The 76ers are four and eight without Joel Embiid. The only reason the 76ers have more wins than the Denver Nuggets is because they've won more games without Embiid than the Nuggets have won without Jokic. Think about how absurd this is when we talk about, well, Embiid gets the nod because they have a better team record. Only because they won games in which Embiid did not play. The Bucs are 5-6 and six without Giannis. So once again, Jokic's only missed six games. So when you go through here, only Chris Paul and DeMar DeRozan have missed fewer games. So automatically, we're just talking about availability. But the Bucs have won five of six. They're almost 500 without Giannis in the lineup. Again, why do they have a better record than the Nuggets? Because of these 11 games, they just happened to win them. Denver was without Yoke. They get murdered. They got outscored by 65 points in a four-game span when he missed four straight. Um, the Warriors are two and three without Steph. So he's also been a bit of an Iron Man so far this year. The Bulls are two and two without DeRozan. The Grizzlies, this is the crazy one. They're 12 and two without John Morant. How nuts is that? Uh, <laughs> their record would be significantly worse if you just like gave them Jokic's uh, or the Nuggets' record without Yoke. And then the Suns, of course, without Chris Paul, although that changes. As you guys saw the news, Chris Paul is going to be out for a significant portion of time. I'm very, very curious to see how that's going to affect. Uh, uh, that's going to affect the Suns' record and just their momentum. Like Chris Paul's going to be out enough time that him getting back, they're going to need every single game from when he returns just to get back into the rhythm heading into the playoffs. So kind of a sneaky big storyline to, to, to pay attention to. We go to the next slide here. The Nuggets are 1-10 in 10 in the 11 games, just 11 games this season where Jokic was in the negative. Meaning when Jokic didn't, when the Nuggets did not win the, the minutes that Jokic was on the court, the team carried him or saved him once out of 11 times. The 76ers are 4-11 with Embiid. So now we talk about they won four games without Embiid and 
of the 15 times this season that Embiid was a negative, they actually won four. They helped win despite Embiid not winning his minutes. The Bucs have, you know, Giannis has 16 times, but numbers are similar, one in 15. If he's not a positive because their starters are so good, when he's not a positive, you know, they tend to lose. But 16 times versus 11, the Warriors are 5-8 and eight without Steph. The Bulls are 6-12 and 12 when DeRozan's a negative. The Grizzlies, this is a crazy one, 5-11. and 11. And then the last one's the craziest. The Suns are seven and nine when Chris Paul. If Chris Paul loses his minutes in a given game, it's about a 50-50, maybe a 40-60 chance that they're going to win uh, those minutes anyway, win that game anyway. So when we talk about why like rec team records should matter, I think people are starting to catch on that this context is actually way more important than just a raw team, uh, team win-loss. And Jokic has all of these on his side. Do I care if Jokic wins or loses the MVP? Not really. I just don't care. He's in the conversation, as he should be. I think Embiid, Giannis, they're having great seasons. Those three guys right now, let's see where the chips fall at the very end. Um, but to me, I the only thing that's good about the way the MVP conversation has swallowed up all the rest of NBA, uh, NBA discourse is that I think the context that we've just sort of glossed over, like team record and advanced stats or all this, I think they're finally being put in the proper or at least a more proper context uh, than they had before. Let's talk about Lightshade Dispensary, guys. They are the official dispensary of DNVR. Right now, if you use the promo code DNVR, you get 25% off your entire purchase. This is the greatest deal you're going to get in all of the DNVR network. You shop online and visit a Lightshade location near you. There's 10, soon to be 11. We're about two weeks away from their 11th uh, market opening up. Um, they're Colorado's premier dispensary. They have premium selections of cannabis concentrates, top shelf uh, flower, edibles, tinctures, accessories, and more. Um, and then they have these great brands like Escape Artists, Ripple, and Wana. Listeners can get 25% off non-sale items with that promo code uh, DNVR. You can shop online by going to lightshade.com. Uh, and then you just pick up at the Lightshade location nearest you. So it's really easy. Get in, get out. Their shops are relatively small, so they're actually very easy to get in and out, even if you don't order online. Um, and they have the highest awarded topical brand in all of Colorado. That's Escape Artists. These are those topical creams and lotions that have THC and CBD in them. The creams penetrate for deep muscle tissue discomfort. They're non-greasy, non-staining, fast-absorbing, and take effect in 10 minutes or less. The benefits last up to two to three hours, so you're going to play a little racquetball, a little basketball, what have you. Um, you just rub some on whatever area you, you need, kind of almost like an icy hot and uh, it, it'll do the trick. It's available in rosé and cedar black pepper. So check them out. Go to lightshade.com and don't forget that promo code DNBR for 25% off. Uh, Harrison, it's good to see you. Good to see you too, man. I listened to that last segment. That's the first MVP segment that's ever been done where you haven't actually said who the MVP is. Th thank you, because I don't care. Like We're not there yet. The MVP, it, we don't know. There's 50 days left in the NBA season. I think it's going to determine who the MVP is. I actually think it'll be less controversial than people realize. Like, I think that the MVP will sort of rise up here in these last few games. At this very moment, Embiid, Jokic, Giannis, I think one of those three guys win. If you gave, like, a sentimental one to Curry or Ja or DeRozan, to me, I think that'd be wrong. By the way, my fourth candidate, and I feel What's very up, strongly Steph? about this, Chris Paul. I think Chris yeah, Paul... But, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. He deserved to be in the conversation for sure. <laughs> uh, but now he's not going to be in the conversation because he's hurt. So do you think with Chris Paul, though, one thing I'm so interested in is how much do you think the Suns slide? Um, A little bit, but they've got a pretty solid record without Chris Paul 
this season and they've just got such a good team. They're so deep. They're six and a half up on the Warriors for the number one seed oh, God, right yeah, now. Seven losses, Jesus. So I don't think they slide a ton. I mean, I don't think this injury, unless it's something where he's hampered by it in the playoffs, like if he's fully healthy for the playoffs, maybe not even for the first round, maybe for the second round, I don't think this injury has that big of ramifications. I really don't. This is also one of those things where this is why you – kick ass in the first four months of the season because i mean he played in the all-star game for some reason last night like they like announced he needs surgery then he went out and played anyway um but you do that when you look down and you go oh we got a seven game lead let's get this thing out of the way we'll have enough time we'll do it now and we should have enough time to kind of get ready so uh, but it's still nonetheless something to watch to see what happens with the nuggets here um yeah. so i went to disney world for my break um and had a great time with the kids did all the little rides so, but you had an interesting weekend as well. Yeah, man. I saw a game at Duke at Cameron Indoor, like the mecca right of here. college basketball. It, it was a bit of a surprise. We went down there to visit a couple friends in North Carolina, and I knew it was a possibility because one of our friends has a connection for tickets. So in the back of my mind, maybe I thought we could go, but I didn't know we were going until that afternoon so really? it was a total surprise it was it was pretty crazy walk us through what's what like what parts lived up to the hype well i mean look i've been to a lot of arenas like i've seen basketball played in a lot of nba arenas a bunch yeah. of different college arenas what's different about cameron indoor is it feels like you're watching basketball in a museum it feels <laughs> right. like a historical museum um it's crazy. It was totally surreal being there, just kind of walking up, walking around campus, approaching the stadium. It just looks like another building kind of. Um, and then you get in there. The concourses are so small. It feels like you're like in a, like in a small baseball stadium or, or like a high school gym. Yeah. Um, it's not that and, big of a stadium overall, right? How many does it hold? Like 15, 18? What is no, it? it's like 9,000, I think. Jeez, that's crazy. So, it's just a really small community of people watching there. And um, just like when Coach K comes out and look like I'm not a college basketball guy. I used to be. I haven't been one for like a decade, but it, it's still so special when you're there and watching Coach K come out and everybody's just like talking about him and watching him walk out onto the floor like he's a god, which he is there. And then when like when they do, you know, they play the same songs at every time out that they play, they do the same chance at every stoppage. And it's like they've just been doing this and winning games here forever. And it's just a crazy, crazy environment. That's awesome, man. Uh, Paolo Banchero or Bencaro. Um, how was he? He's OK. Um, not too impressed. Wasn't foul trouble in the first half, had a good second half, but it was, it was a wild experience. I mean, the students there are, are incredible. Um, you know, you know, the song, like, um, all we do is win that really corny song that every team plays at the end of games. Yeah. Well, like Duke plays that during the game and <laughs> like the students go crazy for it. And I'm thinking like, yeah, this is like a really corny song, but that is actually all they do at Duke. Usually they just win. <laughs> I hate Duke. 
I just like I, I can't I can't love him. I just I'm a Duke hater. I'm one of these guys. I'm not I'm not a Carolina liker though. That's the thing. Like my buddy, one of my best friends is a Wolfpack fan. The forgotten of the trio. They are also in the triangle. The NC State the, Wolfpack. Definitely the forgotten younger brother. <laughs> the redheaded stepchild of the uh, the trio there. But I almost like I latch onto them. They're like the Nuggets of the ACC. Yeah. Well, I think you're in the majority because there's definitely more Duke haters than there are Duke fans. Yeah, like, absolutely. The, like, the Duke fan base is a really small fan base. It's pretty much like people that just went to Duke or, like, know somebody who went to Duke. Uh, no, that's it. Everybody else hates Duke. Well, glad you uh, glad you got to go to the me- Mecca. Are you – do you feel – because you know how it is, Harrison. There's the whole off season, then there's the whole regular season up until this point. But when All-Star arrives, the trade deadlines in the past, it is a sprint. This is like the season's a marathon. This is the final like five miles where like now you have to like run all out. It is a sprint, not just for them, for us. Are you ready for the next, the playoffs begin in 50 days of, as of today. Are you ready for the next 50 day sprint that the Nuggets are going to have? I think so. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's crazy because I was reading that this all-star break i think is happening at like one of the latest points in the season that it ever has so usually we got a little more time but i mean there's just what 20 like five games left 24 23 something like that and yeah like you were saying man there's there's a lot up in the air still yeah all right, well, here's what's going to happen in the next 50 days so everybody knows because there's going to be more that occurs with the Nuggets. There are more topics of conversation, just more things to kind of look forward to on the horizon in the next 50 days than there were in the previous 200, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the Nuggets schedule, they have 15 home games and just nine away games. It's the most favorable home away schedule in the entire NBA. And it's also one of the most – it's actually the number one most favorable schedule when you factor in strength of opponent – home versus away, rest versus not rest. It is far and away the most favorable schedule in the NBA. They have the most home games remaining, and they have 15 home games in 42. So there's going to be a lot of nights at Ball Arena over the next 42 42 games, uh, starting from Saturday all the way to the end of the season. Yeah, and these next six games – have you looked at just the next six games on the Nuggets schedule? Because, I wish they I wish they weren't quite this easy here because I do right. worry about the hangover effect, like uh getting back into it. Maybe there's like one or two games. Like the two Sacramento games scare me. They do scare you, but I, I wonder if a lot of teams have that effect. It's it's yeah. not just the Nuggets. I mean, Denver should win these next six games, and that means they would be on a nine-game winning streak. They've got Sacramento twice, Portland, Oklahoma City, Houston, New Orleans. The yep. next six games. Um, so you put together the three they won before the all-star break. They should be on a nine game winning streak here that, that they should be riding the longest winning streak of the Jokic era heading into those, you know, two games and three games with golden state. I think they will be favorites in all six at Sacramento. I mean, Sacramento is kind of a new look Sacramento. It's always hard to play a new team. Like you just don't know. I'm sure during this break, they're all going to be adding new plays and stuff. So it's very hard. So they might lose that one. And then the Portland game, it's a back-to-back. It is a home back-to-back, so there's no travel in between, which makes a big difference. But those are the two that if they were to lose, those one of those two would probably be the one. But I agree with you. Like Oklahoma City, they're in full-on tank mode. This is post-All-Star break. You start to shut it down. Houston, terrible. New Orleans, 
you know, New Orleans is better and they have CJ McCollum, but come on at home off, off of rest on a Sunday, Denver should get that one. Um, so a lot of these games I, I'm with you, man, it's a very favorable next six games. And this is where Denver has to make their move. I want to see it. There should be some excitement. Uh, I want to see it. There's only three back-to-backs remaining, which is great. Like you just talk about how much of an annoyance they are. Only three of them. There are, there's one three game road trip remaining. That's, that's it. They have a bunch of little road trips here. One game, two game, but three game road trip. There's only one. It's Philadelphia, Washington, Cleveland. That's a really tough one, by the way. That's a really tough road. Like what Cleveland and Philly are two of the four best teams in the East right now, at least record wise. And then Washington, Denver should win that one, but it's in the middle of a road trip. So that's always tough. Um, But outside of that, they've got two four game homestands and a three game homestand. So they have really, really long home stands and one medium sized road trip. Very, very favorable. The, the the one thing that does concern me a little bit about the rest of this schedule, they've got a lot of games against teams that are vying for the play-in. Right. Uh, they've, they've got a lot of teams in that 8, 9, That's 10 good. range, and then you know, 11, 12, 13, who are going all out, absolutely all out for the play-in. I mean, you, they play Sacramento three times in the next three weeks, including that back-to-back. They've got New Orleans, like you were saying. Uh, they've got two games with the Lakers to end the season. And I know the Lakers have been a dumpster fire, but you know they're going to be trying to get into some positioning of some sort. So th- there's going to be a lot of teams that they play that, like you said, yeah, desperate. Um, we go. The seating is going to be interesting here too, because you know I'm still a little bit worried about the play-in. Like I did, I just don't want Denver to fall to the play-in. I don't think they will. Winning six games in a row would really help that if they get the six-game win streak going. They should build up enough of a cushion. Right now, they're ahead three losses. But it's really two losses because they do not have the tiebreaker now, I don't believe, against Minnesota. So you're, you, know, you, you can't tie with Minnesota. You don't want to tie with them. So they have that cushion on Minnesota. But they're also three games back of the four seed, so they could potentially host. I think what's interesting about Denver is I'm really only worried about the play-in. Four, five, six, don't really care. In fact, if I had to say what I would rather have, there's an argument to be made you'd rather be the six seed and play Memphis than you would rather be a four or five seed and be tasked or faced playing Phoenix in the second round. Like you start to think a little bit further around because I think Phoenix is far and away Denver's toughest matchup. So if you start to look at that, you always want to vie for home court. It's just, it's smart to. But if not, short of that, I'm like, why not be the six? Just don't be the play-in. That's the only thing that that I look at. And I think, like you said, six-game homestand, Denver can put cushion there to where you feel pretty good about it. Yeah. Yeah. And insanely important six games coming up. Absolutely important. And then here's the most – here's the, the big thing. I suspect, Harrison, when we come back and meet with the Nuggets this week, when they have practice, we're going to get some kind of update from Jamal Murray. I don't think we're going to get, oh, yeah, he's three weeks out. I don't think we're going to get that. But I do think we are going to get something about – like, I'm going to ask, is, is he – do you know when he's scheduled to start doing contact? Is he doing contact? When is he scheduled to? Is he starting to play five-on-five? Five? What's his level of participation? Those questions now heat up, in part because they're going to be home more, so you're going to have a lot more local media. But also, this is the time. Like, this is the time Denver has to expect starting to talk about these things. I think we're going to get it, and obviously his return – by the way, we're going to have a party bus March 27th, Saturday, March 27th against, uh, I believe, is it Oklahoma City, that game? Yeah. Against Oklahoma 26th. City. 26th. 
I think I hope Murray is back before that, but who knows? Maybe that's Murray's return date. Maybe that's MPJ's return date. Um, I feel like the vibes will bring a return date on that day just with everybody being on the party bus. So to me, that's the number one thing that's happening here over the next 50 days. Jamal Murray will return. Will, you're writing it down in Sharpie 100%. He's definitely coming back. Uh, I am. I am because I, it would be so ridiculous if he wasn't other, you know, him getting hurt again. But to me, are you not? No, I think he's coming back. I mean, I'm not going to say it's 100%. Because I, I just don't yeah. think it's a hundred percent. Yeah, but all right. It's not I, I definitely, I definitely, I definitely think he's coming back. I think Michael Porter Jr. is coming back. Um, mm. But again, not a hundred percent. I just, you know, you just can't say that. You just can't. Yeah. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. just updates. Same thing. Like everybody's going to be focused on Murray. And by the way, when they have practice, I'm curious just to see what Murray looks like. We've talked about he looks like he probably needs to slim up as part of his getting back ready. You know, I haven't seen him personally for now two weeks. I know. Did you? Were you? Um, when was the last time you were at the arena to see Jamal? Uh, last time I was at the arena to see Jamal. Last Tuesday. Before the Magic game. I wasn't at the Magic game, so it's been a while for me. It's been. Two plus weeks, almost. The point, yeah. the point is, I think there's a good chance that when we see Jamal this next time, I hope that he looks a little different. I hope that he looks a little bit more like, okay, I see that he is starting to get back to where, where he's supposed to be. So that'll be exciting. Michael Porter, same thing. Last time I saw him, he was not missing three-pointers while he shot for 30 minutes, and he looked good. I want to see, is he dunking? Is he, is he, does he have a practice jersey on? These things that should be happening. Also, by the way, the Nuggets have until March 10th, which is now getting closer. I think two and a half, three weeks away. And that would be a date that if they are not, if he's not coming back, we should know by then. So, um, again, that's, that's all for the here. exception. Yeah. The, the, mm. what is it called? The, the injured player exception, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing with that is you need to sign it with a guy to a roster spot. And I think that last roster spot's going to, you know, DeMarcus Cousins. So I, I don't know where else that's that's going to be used if it's not Cousins, you know. Yeah, DeMarcus Cousins. We even need the update on that just to see if he's going to uh, to be back or not. Um, we got uh, – here's a big one for me. Aaron Gordon at his best this year has looked incredible. And there have been times where he's looked to me like he looks a little tired of this, that. This is, a long, this is the longest rest he's got you know, um, other than when he was out for like two weeks with the hamstring thing. I'm very curious what Aaron Gordon looks like for these final 50 days. I kind of suspect that we're going to see the best of Aaron Gordon um, after the all-star break. But there's been a little physical coasting on his part. Yeah, I, I think he's been coasting. I think he was just trying to get to the break yep. without having some, you know, significant injury. Like, I feel like he has been going at, you know, 80%, maybe at yeah. the most. Um, coming out of the break, you know, I, I wonder if this first couple of weeks after the break, he still is going at 80% and then turns yeah. it on when we actually get closer to the stretch run. Um, likewise with, with Will Barton, by the way, like this Will Barton desperately needed this break as well. And I'm curious to see, I feel like Will Barton also physically has coasted a little bit this year for good reason. And I'm curious if we get a better Will Barton down the stretch. If we get, if the Will Barton down the stretch looks more like the Will Barton of the first ten games of the season, where he looked to me like he was in his oh, peak man. form. Yeah, I, you know he looked like that guy in the first ten games of the season, and then you know didn't look that like that guy for 
you know, three games in a row the rest of the way. He had a couple nice back-to-back games, but we didn't see that guy we saw at the beginning of the year. So, you know, maybe we do, but I'm, I'd say I'm definitely less confident in him, you know, looking like that guy than Aaron Gordon. Um, let's see some other things that are going to happen here. Oh, here, here's a big one. 15 out of 24 games are at home. Who do you think that benefits the most on the team? In my opinion, there's two players, Bones Highland and Zeke Naji. And if I go through these numbers, Harrison, Bones Highland this season, his only season, shooting 37.5% from three in home games, 31.5% on road games. That's 6% better at home. Now you talk about he's more comfortable. He's coming off of that rookie-sophomore game where he played well. His confidence, I think, is at an all-time high based on how the last four games went with him getting the start in three of those but being solidly in the rotation. And now you get to play all these games at home. I think Bones Highland has his best stretch to close the season, and that's exciting. And then if I look at Zeke Naji over his career – 50% 50% from three at home, 40% from three on the road. I think both of those guys have a very good end of the season. Yeah, and um, it's it's interesting because I feel like maybe a month ago, you know, Zeke Naji had clearly overtaken Jamichael Green in the rotation. I feel like who's the Nuggets' third big is kind of a bit of a question again. I feel like it definitely should be Zeke, and maybe he's got a little bit of a leg up still, but the gap between those, at least in Michael Malone's mind, I think has shrunk down to pretty negligent. So that's a storyline to watch, but I agree. I mean, if Bones can have a couple of games coming out of the All-Star break like he did over this recent stretch that he did, that's going to be massive. I think him playing at home is going to be huge as well. It is going to be interesting to see, you know, you were just talking about Jamal Murray coming back. What does that do to Bones Highland's role? Because, you know, then you've got you that pushes him down to the fourth guard at best, you know, behind Jamal, Monte, and Will Barton. What does his role look like then? I think is a big storyline. Somebody's asking if Hill or Zeke and Bones going to be part of the playoff rotation. We don't know that, but I do feel like these next six weeks will help us know that a lot better. Should they play? That's why I think that they both will. Um, that's one of like if if I told you Jamichael Green doesn't play very much, he plays sparingly over the next few weeks. But in the playoff series, you had to plug him in. I feel like you'd be like, I know what you get. Maybe it's ten percent worse than what you would have gotten before, but you know. Whereas vice versa, if you played Jim Michael Green over this next version, not Zeke, and then you had to play him in a playoff series, it'd be like. Mystery box, no idea if Naji's ready for this. Um, and does the team even trust him? So I think it goes this way. Quick little side note here, because I see a lot of like Serbian going back and forth between people. So one thing about like, I, I always say try to speak in English, but people don't always know this, especially for our Serbian corner show. We're trying to get sponsors for that show so the guys can make some money off of their efforts, you know, from doing this. And one of the things sponsors keep telling us is that, hey, we think that this is too, you know, is it an American audience? Because we're looking for American sponsors. That's where the money is. And people say no. So when I ask for you to speak, to like in the chat speak english i'm not trying to be a jerk i'm trying to get more money for these guys so if you guys like i we love having the serbians here but if you want to try to help out your fellow serbian corner hosts that's why i try to tell you keep it try to keep the comment section in english it'll really help with uh, uh when we're presenting everything to our sponsors because that's one of the notes we're getting um and then lastly the mvp conversation will heat up Jokic. uh i i hate that conversation up to this point <laughs> Now it's going to be fun to find out, does Joel Embiid 
How does it work with James Harden? Giannis and the Bucks, can they be a one seed? They're close enough. They're in striking distance in Denver. Let's see what Jokic does as an encore to what has been his best season to date. So we are going to get that conversation even more and more, and it should be fun. Like if we allow it, it can be fun to follow. Um, Marco just 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 doesn't care. He like takes my recommendation and says "f that." <laughs> you know he's talking he's shit about you money. in the comments, right? Yeah, he's like, I don't want Miroslav or Voya to make it to any any money. <laughs> so um, there you go. Any parting thoughts before we get out of here? This, I know this one little little a little long, but I'm excited to be back. Well, I mean, I know you hate talking about the MVP conversation, but Monday, March 14th, Nuggets are in Philly against the 76ers. I mean, that game could sway a ton of voters. It's on it ESPN. That game, I think, you know, maybe more than any game we've seen in the last couple of years could just decide the MVP. It definitely will. <laughs> it definitely will. That's how these things work. It's head to head. And when it happens late in the season, it's like, oh, there it is. Definitively, this is what happened. Um, so that's because you know, Mark Jackson's going to be on that call and he's going to be like, oh, Joel yeah. Embiid, he is the most valuable player. <laughs> he's going to be pushing the, the narrative very hard. Jeff I got to find our outro here. Thanks everybody for, for tuning in. Um, we appreciate it. Stay uh, connected with DNVR. We got all kinds of great stuff coming up for you here over the next week. Some great shows tomorrow. Going to be talking to Tony Jones. Going to be talking to Fast Break Breakfast. My guy, Keith Parrish. Going to be talking with uh, Kirk Henderson, uh, Mavs Moneyball. And who else I got? Uh, one other person from... I'm, uh, it's all of the teams that are right there. Utah, Minnesota, Memphis, and um, Dallas. And just kind of getting a sense from people covering those teams. Are they Where are they going to finish in the standings? And who are they afraid of or want to match up with in the playoff series? So that should be a great show tomorrow. We'll be live at 2.30. We'll see everybody then.